This is ingrained in us from a very young age when you think about it, even as kids. When you're kids, you look at your class and you know who's the tallest, you know who's the fastest in a race, you know who's the best at math, you know who's the best at spelling. Uh, We do this from a very young age. You know, we do things like spelling bees for children, right? Uh, So that from, if something happens and, you know, the world's going to explode and we need someone to spell chrysanthemum, we know who to call on in the class. To spell that, by the way, it's not me. I had to put that word in my spell check six times before it would even recognize that's the word I was trying to spell. But we rank people based on what we do. We, we uh, try and gauge them. We learn how to separate people out. We learn how to find out who the strongest is. When I was growing up in elementary school, it was very easy to know who the strongest in the class was. We played a game that made it very easy to know who the strongest was. We had a giant pile of dirt in the playground which I can't even imagine them allowing this today. And we played a game called King of the Mountain. Anybody played King of the Mountain? Yeah, King of the Mountain was this very safe game where one kid would run up the pile of dirt and stand at the top and everyone else would try and throw them off the mountain. And uh, you do whatever you can, push them, pull them, and try and throw them down. And the guy standing at the end was the King of the Mountain. I did it once. I pulled this guy Richard off and then his brother Cliff came and threw me down. And I was not king of the mountain for very long. Uh, But we know who the strongest is. We have all kinds of ways. And it doesn't stop when you're a kid. When you get to college, we have things like your GPA. And we rank you. Who's the best? Who's the smartest? Who's the valedictorian? Again, not me. I had to put that word in my spell check to get that one. But we have ways to rank people. It doesn't stop at college. When you go to work, whether you're white collar, blue collar, they find ways to rank you against your peers, right? Maybe they're, you're ranked against your peers across the country or in a school or in a firm uh, to know how you are doing. Or maybe they just have a whiteboard on the wall that says this person's doing great, this person's doing the best. Maybe they put your picture up, maybe you get a parking spot. Whatever it is, we have ways to rank people uh, and separate out the best from the rest. Of course, we do it in sports. If I hear one more argument about who the best quarterback is between Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers, my head is going to explode. Or who the best coach is, whether best Belichick's the best coach of all time, of course he is, so we don't even know why we argue about that. <laughs> but we have all kinds of ways of ranking things. The game tonight is to decide who is the best football team in the country. And that's what the game is there to decide, because we want to know who's the best. All of this to say that there's something within us that always wants to establish a pecking order. There's something within us that wants to know where we stand and to make sure other people know where they stand. So it's really not a surprise that this type of thinking creeps into our spiritual lives as well. It's really not a surprise that this type of thinking comes into the church. This ranking makes its way into the church and into following Jesus. Perhaps you don't think so. Well, think about the last time you were at a meal with your family or maybe a gathering of Christian people. Who did, how did you decide who was going to pray for the food? Maybe you had some other way, but I'll tell you how you decided. You looked around the room and said, oh, is there a pastor here? Huh? No pastor. Deacon? Elder? No deacon, elder. Uh, you teach? You teach something? Oh, you seem holy. I've heard you pray. You pray. 
This type of thinking, this ranking, this, we, we, this creeps even into the church. Oh, you're real holy. You pray, you pray for the food. And this type of thinking creeps in, this ranking, this pecking order that comes in. It happens not just now, but it happened then among the followers of Jesus. It happened in Jesus' day in his, among his first followers. Our text this morning finds the disciples in such a discussion. We're returning to the Gospel of Mark this morning. We'll be in Mark from now through Easter Sunday. If you remember last year, we got through the first half of the book of Mark, chapters 1 through 8. And the first half of the book of Mark really talked about establishing who Jesus is and who he isn't. He's not just a miracle worker here just to solve your earthly problems. He's not an earthly king. Jesus was dispelling all of these myths. Finally, in chapter 8, there was the culmination where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' identity is revealed right there at that crux, at that middle point of the book of Mark. That's the turning point for the book of Mark. And we're picking up on chapters 9 through 16 from now on through Easter Sunday, where it really turns. And the second half of the book of Mark focuses mostly on the Passion Week, but really focuses on not on Jesus' identity, but on the identity of his followers. What should people who follow Jesus be like? What should their lives be like? What should they be characterized by? And so that's what much of the second half of the book uh, focuses on. And so in Mark chapter 9, the disciples find themselves in this discussion about who is the greatest, about the pecking order among them, and Jesus finds a way uh, and, and corrects them, and we want to talk about that this morning. So Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, the way Jesus corrects him may not be obvious at first glance, and that's what I want to get into this morning. It says, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the road they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The way we usually understand this passage when we first come to it is it seems that Jesus is redefining their method of ranking. His disciples are having a conversation they know they shouldn't have, but it comes up anyway. And it probably comes up pretty often because every time they sit down to a meal, they have to decide who sits closest to Jesus. So the discussion probably comes up pretty often of who's the greatest among them, but they also know they shouldn't be having it. So they're walking along the road. I suppose they're behind Jesus if he has to ask the question maybe. And they're muttering. And you can imagine how this conversation's going. You know, they're like, yeah, Peter, you're the one who always speaks the most. But Andrew was here first. So maybe Andrew should be, you know, the greatest among us. And then Matthew, he was a tax collector. He's pretty good at business. So maybe he should be, you know, of highest rank. And Judas, he's good with money. So maybe Judas should be you know, the highest rank among us. And Thomas is just saying, I doubt if any of you are better than me. And then, uh, you know, everyone's like, well, John, he seems to like you a lot. And, and so they're trying to decide who's the greatest among them. The same thing, uh, conversations that often take place. Jesus knows what they're talking about without them even saying it. And then he says, 
Listen, whoever wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. What it sounds like at first glance is that Jesus is redefining their view of greatness. He's setting out a new criteria. Essentially, it seems like Jesus is saying, guys, the way to figure it out, you want to know how to know who's the greatest? Here's the way to figure it out. Based on all the criteria used in the past, just throw that out and just figure out who is serving the most. And that's who's the greatest among you. That's how we usually interpret this passage. We think he's redefining the criteria for greatness. There's certainly a call to servanthood that's present in this passage. Jesus is saying that his followers are going to be characterized by being servants. Jesus will demonstrate this time and time again in his life. He'll wash their feet. He'll uh, touch people that no one else will touch. He'll talk to people that no one else will talk to. He will certainly go to the cross for sins he did not commit. The huge, this is a huge divergent for followers of Jesus from the thinking of the world around them and around us. Our world does not believe or tout the path to greatness through serving others. Our world measures greatness by how many people are serving you. The measure of greatness in our world are how many followers do you have on Twitter? How many Facebook friends do you have? How many people know your name? The natural bent in our world is to look at other people and ask, how may you serve me? Sounds strange. We wouldn't say it that way. We might not even think it, but we often approach life this way in our hearts. We look at someone and we say, how may you serve me? How may you help me get what I want and what I need? How can me knowing you or you being in my life help me get to where I want to go? We often approach life with a heart that says, how may you help me get where I need to go? Do you have a connection I want? Do you have a resource that will be helpful to me? We don't say it. We don't think it in our head sometimes. But in our heart, humanity often approaches life and people know whether you can help me or not. Of course, a servant has a very different mentality. The servant comes with the question of, how can I serve you? A servant asks, how can I help you get what you want? How can I I help you achieve your goals? How can I help you get what you need? These are the questions of a servant. We don't want to be servants at times, I don't know what your picture of a servant is. Maybe when I say the word servant, we don't use it a lot in our culture. Maybe you think of uh, 18th and 19th century slavery in, in the United States. And when I say the word servant, that's, those are the pictures that come into your mind, uh, something like this. And you think, well, that's what a servant is. Or maybe you think of migrant workers in the United States even now. And you think, well, you know, these ideas, these are abusive. These are uh, ideas that extort people. These aren't, you know, these aren't ideas that, that why would the Bible endorse something like this that is abusive and, and cruel to people when it comes to being a servant? Or maybe when you think of servant, you think of uh, Victorian England with a number of uh, servants that served. Or maybe you think of someone in a restaurant serving. Let me just talk about this last one because in a restaurant, maybe the last place or the, one of the few places in our society that we actually still use the word. If you go out to lunch this afternoon, you go to a restaurant, it's very likely that the person approaches your table will say, hi, I'm John and I will be your server today. We don't use that word a lot, but for some reason it's stuck in that context that he'll walk up and say, I will be your server today. Now, what would be strange is if John walked up to your table and said, hi, my name is John. How may you serve me today? 
right? I mean, that we would say, what, what? They say, how may you serve me today? You know, it would be strange. We don't expect someone with a servant heart and a servant mentality. What we expect John to do is walk up the table, hi, my name is John, how may I serve you today? Or I'm gonna be your server today, what can I get you? How can I help you get what you want right now? And so that's, as followers of Jesus, we're certainly called to follow his example of being a servant. We're called to love others and consider their needs and serve them. If you're wondering if you're a servant or not, one of the past presidents of a ministry called Navigators, uh, Lauren Sani, said this, if you want to know if you're a servant or not, just look at how you act when someone treats you like one. And then you can kind of measure if you've had a servant heart or not. How do you act and respond when someone treats you like one? As followers of Jesus, we're characterized by the way we serve. However, if we think when we come to this passage that Jesus is calling us to change the criteria for greatness from how many people serve you to how many people you serve, I fear we're missing the point of the passage. And we miss completely what Jesus is really saying. If we come to this passage and think that Jesus just changes one criteria for another, if we think that Jesus is just moving the goalposts and reorienting the score, then we miss the point. In fact, my fear is that we come to this passage and we just change the criteria and we end up worse than we were before. That sometimes we'll come to this passage and we'll say, okay, oh, it's not about my name being great. It's about serving. And so I'm going to be the best servant I can be. My fear is when we do that, that we end up in a worse place than when we started. And here's why. Because Jesus is not just changing the score. He's changing the game. Jesus is calling them to serve, but he's not telling them to use it as their new metric for greatness. Jesus is not telling them, now measure who serves the most, and then you will know who the greatest is. The truth is they could fall into the same pitfalls serving that were in their discussion of who's the greatest. Simply serving others does not protect you from the very pride and sin that caused these men to have this conversation in the first place. Just being a servant does not exonerate you from the idea of ranking. Here's how ingrained we are in this whole ranking thing. We will start ranking who the best servant is. We will start a ranking of who serves the best, and we will make them. And then we'll say, well, they serve the best. Mother Teresa, she served the best. And we start a ranking about that. Dr. Harry Ironside, a, a preacher, uh, in centuries past, he, he, he felt that he was not as humble as he thought he ought to be. So showing his concern, he asked an elder friend what he could do, and this was his friend's reply. He said, make a sandwich board with the plan of salvation on the sandwich board and scripture on it, and wear it for an entire day and walk around the business and shopping of downtown Chicago for the whole day, and he did that. And uh, Ironside followed his friend's advice upon completion of this humiliating experience. He returned to his apartment. He took off the sandwich board and he caught himself thinking, there's not another person in Chicago that would be willing to do a thing like that. And you see what happened? In his humility, he suddenly was starting to feel prideful over his humility. He was starting to feel prideful about being the best servant. 
Jesus is not changing the goalpost. He's not changing the scoreboard. He's changing the game. We all know stories of people with the title of public servant, but have, anything, but have been anything but. You can point to them. You've seen them in the media. You've seen them in the news. Just having the title of servant does not make a person one. When we assume just because a person serves that they are not subject to temptation, we remove a bit of their humanity. A servant is capable of envy, of anger, of lust, of gossip, of being greedy, and of being unkind. Jesus isn't saying just be a servant, and that becomes the ranking. It may be that being a servant makes you even more greedy and angry. Because maybe you think, hey, here I am serving. I'm not getting any respect. Hey, here I am serving. I deserve what they have. Jesus isn't saying just because you serve, you're great. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying is change who you want to make great. He's actually saying, think differently about who it is you want to make great and whose name you want to make great. And serving is just a way to get there. Look at the text again. Go back to that last part of Mark. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. I think that is the point of the passage. That what Jesus is saying is, look, you guys are arguing about who's great. It's not about, it's not about your personal prominence against your peers. It's about worshiping God, welcoming the Father. And when you serve someone, you welcome me. And when you welcome me, you welcome the Father. And that's the point. It's not about changing your criteria for greatness and serving instead of lording it over people. It's about the end result of worshiping God the Father. Jesus is not changing from how may, I, how may you serve me to how may I serve you. That's too easy. He's changing it to how may I love God and the answer is by serving you. It's too easy to just go from how may you serve me to how may I serve you. I still get to think I'm great that way. Jesus is changing it to how can I best love God the Father? And the answer is by serving you, by serving the people around me, by serving someone in need. He brings up a child. Why? Because a child is, is, was totally uh, dependent is completely, especially in that society, had no voice, no standing in society apart from the father. So he would have to have a relationship with the father, and the father's the only thing that gives a voice. The child itself had no voice in that society. And Jesus says, look, when you welcome the person who has no voice, can't do anything for themselves, is completely dependent, you're welcoming me. And when you welcome me, you're welcoming the father. And that's the point. The point is not strictly to serve. The point is, how may I love God? And the answer is by serving you. The server in the restaurant is really saying, how may I serve you so that I can get what I want at the end of this meal, which is a really big tip? How can you help me get what I want? Jesus is saying that our motivation 
should be how can we help God get what he wants. He's not changing the score, he's changing the game. He counters their desire for greatness with a call to serve. He does not appeal to their desire to be great. That would be the right will in the wrong way. Instead, he appeals to their desire to please Jesus and the Father. The call is not to be great. The call is not even to be a servant. The call is to love and worship God. That's the call. See, if he appealed to their desire to be great, he's appealing to their flesh. He's appealing to that side of them that wants something for themselves. He says, no, 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 no. I don't want to use the wrong, I don't want to use the wrong motivation to achieve the right goal. You need the right motivation and the right goal. And the right motivation is loving God. And the way to do that is through serving others. Serve to please God and not to make your own name great. The picture on the front of your bulletin is an interesting one this week. Some of you, you may not recognize it if you haven't seen it in the news this week, but if you've turned on your TV, you've probably seen it in the news this week. Um, The picture of that, if you can't make it out, it's kind of like... kind of like one of those old 3D pictures you got to look at to kind of figure out what's going on there for a second. Um, but that's actually the marathon finish line there in Boston. And uh, this guy on uh, Tuesday or Monday shoveled out the finish line. And uh, then, I don't know, I retweeted it. Some of you may have seen it. Boston Police Department was asking who shoveled the finish line. They didn't know who had shoveled the fish. Someone had gone out. You know, you can see the street isn't, uh, isn't shoveled around, but someone had specifically gone out and shoveled that finish line, and they didn't know who had done it. Uh, and the man, they eventually tracked down who had done it. It wasn't because he said, I shoveled the finish line. It was because his boss said, hey, this guy works for us, and he shoveled the finish line. And they wanted to draw attention to it. But here's the interesting thing. The guy himself, when he's asked, why did you do it? And he said, he said, you know, I thought about the three people who had, you know, been killed at the finish line and the marathon bombings. I thought about all the people that were injured. And to me, that is sacred ground and it just shouldn't have been covered up with snow and it should have been shoveled out. And so he was doing it for a higher purpose, not for praise for himself. See the difference? The difference between saying, hey, look at me, look what I did, to I'm doing something because this is who I am and I think it's the right thing to do. And that's the way we're called to in Christ, to do stuff and to serve people, not to say, hey, look at me, I'm the greatest at serving, but to say, this is who I am. I serve and I love people because God is worthy and that's why I do it. There's a big difference. It's not to go from how may you serve me to how may I serve you, but it's how may I love God and it's by serving you. Let me close with this story from Tim Keller that I think illustrates it perfectly. This is in his book, The Prodigal God. Keller tells a little parable and he says this. He says, once upon a time there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. 
And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, my, that's what you get for a carrot. What if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. It's a big difference, right? In serving to make God's name great. In serving just to worship and love God rather than if Jesus was just changing the score and saying he who serves the most is the greatest. He wasn't changing the score. He was changing the game. Saying, look, forget about your rankings of who's the greatest. But worry about whether you're pleasing God the Father. And that's what's important. When you look back on your life, I'm going to ask, in fact, our music team can make their way to the stage if they're on their way. Let me conclude with this. When you look back on your life, when you look back on your day, the things you thought were the most significant likely will look very different through the eyes of God. The things that you gave very little thought to and didn't think were significant might turn out to be the heroic acts in the economy of God. When you ask God, when did I welcome you most? When did I receive you best? When did I worship you most? Maybe a conversation goes something like this. Remember January 20th, 2013? And you think back and you say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When I spent three hours reading the Bible. Maybe God says, oh yeah, yeah, that was great. But I was thinking about later in that day when you offered to babysit for your neighbor who was a single mom and really needed a break that night. See, when you did that, you, you welcomed your neighbor and you welcomed my son. And when you welcomed my son, you welcomed me. And when you, when, you, when you welcomed that person into your life, you welcomed Jesus, my son. And when you welcomed Jesus, you welcomed me. Or maybe the conversation goes, remember July 10th, 2010? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a great day of worship. We had a great worship service. The altar time was amazing. I spent time in prayer. That was incredible. I still remember the message. And God says, oh, yeah, that was, that, that was, that was great. But, but I, I was thinking of something later in that day. I was thinking when you went over and sat with your friend who just lost her mom to cancer. Because when you welcomed her into your life, you welcomed my son Jesus. And when you welcomed my son Jesus, you welcomed me. And that was worship. Maybe he says, remember, remember August 30th? Oh yeah, that was the day I got to lead a class at church and, and I got to teach. And that was, that was so great, God. And God said, oh yeah, that, that was good. But I was thinking of something later in the day when you picked up the kids that you didn't really know and you took them out school shopping because they needed clothes and, and things for school. And, and when you welcomed them into your 
home and into your presence. You welcomed my son, and when you welcomed my son, you welcomed me. That's worship. And it's not one or the other, right? One flows out of the other. The reading the Bible, the going to church, the teaching, all that. What should erupt out of that is love for God that results in service to people in need. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, stop arguing about who's the greatest. Come and serve. How would things be different? What a wonderful world, what a wonderful church. The way God looks at things, we welcome those in need. We welcome Jesus, we welcome the Father. How different life would be if I brought the heart of a servant into my life. If I was less concerned, if anybody noticed what I did and more concerned about welcoming my father, my marriage, my parenting, my working, my life as a friend, how much better would my relationships in life be? More importantly, how much more would God be worshiped in my life? Imagine your life lived for God in such a way that you are not worried about the ranking. Imagine your life lived in such a way that you are not worried about how great you are or how you're doing in comparison to someone else. Imagine a life lived only thinking about pleasing your father. Imagine going to bed at night not thinking about if I did enough, but simply resting in the assurance that you welcomed your father. That's the life that Jesus calls you to live. When it comes down to it, the disciples weren't really arguing about who was first, were they? They weren't really arguing about who was the greatest. They were really arguing about who was second. They knew Jesus was first. They knew Jesus was the greatest. They were really arguing about who's going to be the best at being second. And what Jesus says is, guys, that's not the argument question is, what can you do that will please your Father? The way to please your Father is by serving and welcoming in those that no one else welcomes. The question isn't, how may you serve me? And it's not, how may I serve you? The question is, how may I love God? And the answer is, by serving you. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you that you didn't just change the score, you changed the game because we get so caught up in the comparison game. We get so caught up in people who are doing more or people who are, we think are doing better or, or what we're not doing or what we should be doing. Father, may we be reminded, especially as we came this morning that you are the center of it all. May we be reminded may we be reminded that you are the greatest and that all we're called to do is worship and love our Father. So Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you'd give us that mindset of a disciple. It's not worrying about who's the greatest, not worrying about who's the best, even the best servant, but it's just asking the question, how can I love God today and who can I serve so that I can love God? Father, make us that kind of people. Make us that kind of church.
In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and we'll close out our service in this one song of worship together.